The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This afternoon, as we begin to look into the Word of God, uh, I, I first want to remind you that uh, a couple of weeks ago, the last time I preached uh, here uh, for you, uh, we took our lesson from the book of Mark, the first chapter. And we said a few things about the book of Mark then, and I don't want to rehash everything, but I do want to remind us that, uh, that according to historical sources and, and the tradition of the early church, the book of Mark was written by John Mark, who is a very uh, prominent figure in the book of Acts. Uh, he is, um, and the early church was unanimous in their acceptance that he was the writer of this second gospel. Uh, he traveled with Paul and Barnabas. There was a big split between Barnabas and Paul over Mark. But in his later years, Mark uh, became close to Peter, apparently. And the, uh, the book of Mark, uh, according to the earliest sources in the, in the church, was written by Mark as dictated to him by Peter. Now, I'm not, understand, I'm not questioning the inspiration of, of the book of Mark. I'm not saying... Uh, anything about that. I believe that it is the inspired Word of God, however it got to us. But I, but I find it interesting and neat and, and very important that we know that the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, uh, according to the ancient sources, was dictated by the apostle Peter. Uh, and it was toward the end of his life, and it was toward the time when he was about to be martyred himself. And, and, and the book of Mark we also are told, was the earliest gospel written, according to most historians and most sources. It was probably written uh, in the 50s or 60s A.D. And uh, if you read the book of Mark, I, I, it's the shortest gospel. It is the most direct and to the point. Uh, there's no fluff, if you will, in the book of Mark. And there's, I don't don't misunderstand me. There's no fluff in any of the Gospels, but it's it's just some elaborate more on the stories. But Mark just gives it to us. He tells us what happened, and he lays it out there for us in a very simple, direct, and straightforward way. If I had to title the message tonight, I would call it this: about the second chapter of the book of Mark, when Jesus broke it down for him. When Jesus broke it down for him, you heard of that phrase before? Somebody said, boy, he broke it down for us. He told us exactly what was what. He explained it to us. And that's what Jesus did in this second chapter of the book of Mark in a very real way. Certainly, Jesus always was direct and to the point and, and, and the best preacher that's ever walked uh, the face of the earth. But, but in the second chapter, after having been introduced onto the scene in the first chapter, initially by Mark himself, who started out saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's laying it out for us. He says, this is good news, and the good news is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That, that, that ought to be good news to us. It, it ought to be good news to us for a variety of reasons, but the most important reason being that only the Son of God could successfully put away our sins. He's the only one that could do that. A lot of men could die for us. We read about all kinds of people throughout the uh, history of mankind, and 
from Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. We read about men who won the Congressional Medal of Honor by laying down their lives for their friends. But they never put away one sin of any one of their friends. They saved their lives here physically, but Jesus Christ saved our lives eternally. And the only way He can do that, the only way it's good news, is if He is indeed the Son of God. And in the second chapter here, uh, we begin to see more about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we begin to read about it, you see in this chapter, in a really direct and important way, He broke it down for those people that were listening to him in, this, in that day. Not just the Pharisees, but also his own disciples and his own people. And look at the first verse here as we read this account. It says, And he again entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. I, I just got to stop here and say this. I hope it is noised that Jesus Christ is in the house at Zion Primitive Baptist Church. That's so important that people know that the Lord Jesus Christ is here. And the only way He'll be here is if, number one, we are gathered together in His name, and number two, that we are loving one another as He loved us. That's the only way it'll work. You know it? But it says, It was noise that He was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And He preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. You would go on to read this, and you're going to see some things that Jesus did. But I want you to notice what he did first. Notice that as he broke it down for them, he actually, they broke down the house to get to him. <laughs> They broke down the roof to get. The, he was he was in the house. Okay, he was there, and they knew he was there, and and they came to the place where he was, and there was no deterrent big enough to keep them from getting to where he was. That's faith, isn't it? Notice what he says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, "Son, thy sins be forgiven thee." But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Notice what happened here. There, this house was broken down. The, the roof was broken down in order for them to get to Jesus because he was in the house. You remember in, in chapter 2 of Luke, you don't have to turn there and sometimes just go back and read it. It's, it's the famous story of the birth of Jesus. And, and beginning in the ninth verse, the angels proclaimed his birth. And you know what they were saying? They were saying, he is here. 
He is here. That's what that's what Mark has been saying through the uh, Peter through the writing of Mark has been saying this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is how it all began. He is now here. He is here. And in, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, notice what Jesus said. After that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, and as his ministry began, this is his gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom of God, and this is what he says about it. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is up in heaven, although it certainly is. He doesn't say that the kingdom of God is over here or over there. He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. You know what he's saying here? He's saying the kingdom of God is here because I'm here. I'm here now. I am in the house. I am no longer in heaven. Uh, I'm no longer seated up there on the throne. I have come down here to earth. I am here and my kingdom is near because I am here. He was in the house. Let me just say this. In this particular house, there wasn't any room for anybody. The room was all taken up. It was... A, it was it was, it was going to be hard. It was going to be trouble for these men who had a friend who was sick to get him there. It says in verse 3, they could not, or verse 4, they could not come nigh unto him for the press. There were so, in verse 2, it already told us there was. There was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. They couldn't even get into the door. They couldn't even get a foot in the door. Now, now this is about the time that in my normal way of thinking, I'm turning to my friend who is sick of the palsy. That means he's, he's a paralytic. He's paralyzed in some way. That's about, that's about the time I'd turn to him and say, Man, I am so sorry, but we tried. <laughs> We did. We tried. We want to help you, buddy. But I, I'm sorry. We just we just can't we just can't go any further. But these men didn't do that. Now, let me let me say this to you as a child of God. Now, now certainly, unless you're born of the Spirit, you're not going to be interested in the house where Jesus is. If you haven't been born of the Spirit, you're a natural man. You receive not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto you. Neither can you know them, for they are spiritually discerned. So I'm talking to born-again, believing children of God. These men were born again, and not only were they born again, they believed that Jesus had the answers. Right. And they had a friend that needed help in that regard. They needed what Jesus had. That friend needed the help that only Jesus could give. I'm so thankful that these men were such good friends that they didn't let a little thing like there being no room in the house stop them. <laughs> you know what they did? They climbed up on the roof. It says they uncovered the roof. They broke up the roof. And they let him down to where Jesus was. Now you think about how many people you read about in the newspaper who've been arrested because they went to some celebrity's house and they broke in a window or they trespassed on the grounds 
they went somewhere where they weren't supposed to be and they they pushed their way in to some place that they didn't have an invitation to be in. I am so thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ is not a Hollywood celebrity. I am so thankful that He is not an unapproachable star. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ is the most approachable person with a capital P in all of history. If you are one of His children, and we're going to see this as we go on, there are no limits to the Lord Jesus Christ as to who He will let approach unto Him. Now, you may not feel like you're worthy to approach unto Him. There's many times I don't feel worthy to approach unto Him. And let me just say to you, you are not worthy, and I am not worthy in myself to approach Him. But praise God, He's an approachable God. I'm not talking about eternal salvation here. I'm talking about, you know, as we read the book of Mark, Certainly there are things in the book of Mark and in all the Gospels that deal with our eternal salvation. But did you know, do you understand that primarily what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about when He says the kingdom of God is at hand is not heaven and eternal glory, but it's here and now and our relationship with Him if we are children of God. That's what He's talking about here. And what He's saying is, is, is to all those who are children of God that He is approachable unto Him. I understand no man can come except the Father which has sent me draw him. I know that. But I'm talking about after you've been born again, maybe you've never heard the gospel. Maybe you never heard about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the most approachable person in all of history and in fact in all of eternity. In fact, he's, He actually approached us. Right. He actually approached us. And notice as they led him down to where he was, Jesus, unlike most celebrities, he wasn't looking for advantage. He wasn't looking for a PR opportunity or money or promotion. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. <laughs> Boy, that's an amazing statement. And the reason we know it's so amazing is because the scribes were sitting there and they heard him say that and they were shocked. They were astounded that Jesus said, he didn't say, okay, be healed. Now he says that later. But notice that the first message that Jesus actually preaches here in this place, the main message that he says to them is, Son, thy sins be forgiving, forgiven thee. If you continue reading verses 8 through 11, he's going to tell us that really the primary reason for the healing was simply to emphasize the forgiving. He, he, said, he said, your sins are forgiven, son. And, and he goes on to say, well, look, arise and take up your bed, but it's just to prove that I've got the power, the Son of Man, so you may know the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I'm saying unto you, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way. You know, the miracles that Jesus performed, they were not an end to themselves. They were, he didn't come down here to be a traveling sideshow. 
He didn't come down here just to, oh, I'm going to turn some water into wine and I'm going to, I'm going to raise a few people from the dead and I'm going to heal some people and uh, make the blind see so everybody can be entertained. That's not why he did that. He did all of that simply to establish uh, in the minds of all of those that saw him that he was the real deal. He was the son of God who he said he was. That was the point of all that. You know, that was the point of all the miracles that the apostles were able to perform in the book of Acts and the apostolic church age. You know why we don't need those miracles today? Because we've got the written word of God. We don't need to establish uh, all that we are who we say we are because we've got the word of God to establish that for us. But in that day, they had to, the Lord granted them this special dispensation so that when people heard them preach and then saw what they did, they say, hey, these guys are the real deal. They've really got some connection to the Lord. And then they began to listen to the message, you see. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come down here primarily to heal. He came down to this earth to forgive sins. <laughs> Boy, he broke that house up, didn't he? <laughs> he broke that house up. As we continue reading in Mark, we read that after this point in verse 13, he went forth again by the seaside and there were people following him. And in verse 14 it says, As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, now listen to this, sitting at the receipt of custom and said unto him, Boy, you're a publican. You better quit what you're doing or you're going to die and go to hell. Is that what he said? No. That's not what he said. He said unto this publican, he said unto Levi, follow me. You know what he's doing now? He's breaking down their pride. Notice what he's doing here. He is calling an unqualified man. Now bear with me. This is Levi. We know him now as Matthew, the writer of Matthew's Gospel. But he is called an unqualified man. At least in the eyes of the religious world of that day. This man was a publican. Now, now you need to understand what a publican was. A publican was as bad as or worse than a traitor. A publican was someone who was cooperating with the Romans. And not only were they seen as cooperators with the Romans, they were also considered to be thieves. Because what, what a publican would do is a publican would get paid by overcharging taxes. They were tax collectors. In that day, tax collectors stole from the people. Because let's just say the tax rate was 10% uh, uh, that the Roman government charged then the tax collector might charge 20% and pocket 10% and send the other 10 on to the Romans. They were considered thieves. They were considered uh, sinners above all sinners. And especially those Jews of that day, they did not like publicans. I can just imagine what Peter and Andrew and James and John must have thought. Now, now remember, Peter and Andrew were brothers and James and John were brothers. And in chapter 1, uh, we've read about their calling. They were good fishermen. And Jesus came to them. They were good Jewish fishermen. And He said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets and they left their ships and their father and they went and they followed Jesus. 
And I can just imagine their thought as they pass by this place where taxes are being collected, that the receipt of custom there, and, and most probably under their breath, they looked at one another and said, there's a tax collector. Huh? I wish, let's get out of here as quick as we can. I wish he wouldn't go this way. I know we're following Jesus, but I wish he wouldn't go this way. And then Jesus, the man they left their livelihood to follow, walks up to this unclean publican, to this man who was looked down upon and hated in many respects by those in the, in the, in the Jewish nation in that day. And he goes up to him and he says, just like he said to Peter and Andrew and James and John, follow me. <laughs> follow me. He, in their eyes, he called an unqualified man. But you know, in a sense, even today, as we believe that God calls preachers, preachers don't just pick up the call and decide to become preachers. Right. Even in our day, in a sense, he always, he, he still calls the unqualified. I won't tell you, beloved, I'm not qualified to stand here before you. In myself, there is, I am not qualified. And if you knew more about me than you do, you'd probably be crank up your cars and drive away. <laughs> because you'd say, I'm not listening to that man who's such a sinner, that man who has such uh, a, a bad way of thinking and does so many things wrong. I'm not qualified. Brother Buddy will tell you the same thing. He's not qualified. I haven't met a preacher yet that's qualified, not in and of himself. But praise God, Jesus qualifies the called. Right. <laughs> you know, he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He, right. I, I would not be here today if it weren't for the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many other things I would rather in my flesh be doing. My children just bought us, Sherry and I, a joint Mother's Day, Father's Day present. It's a swing, but it's a, it's a little swing with two seats in it, and it's got a little place to, to between a little console between us. You can set a drink there, you can you can lay a book there, you can put a snack there. You can even you sit down in that swing and it'll recline back. You know where I was about an hour ago? I was sitting in that swing. You know where in my flesh I'd like to be right now? Sitting in that swing. <laughs> but but I'm, not, I'm not qualified in the flesh. But praise God, when He called me, He qualified me. I am only qualified because He called me. <laughs> right. You see. And in this case, He called a man who was looked upon and in Himself, I'm sure, felt to be completely unqualified men often run from the call to preach men and women alike often run from the call to service but certainly from the call to preach men run from that i ran from it i ran a long time from it but i i ran right into the arms of jesus ultimately and and here i am today now, because we do not believe in the absolute predestination of all things, let me just say to you that when Jesus looked at Levi and said, follow me, the next sentence could have read, and Levi shook his head and said, I'm too busy. Right. 
Or he could have said, Lord, I, I'm not qualified. Go, go find somebody else. Or any other number of excuses Levi could have made. But instead it says he arose and followed him. And Luke puts it a little different. Luke, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 28. It says, and he left all, rose up, and followed him. I'll tell you this, beloved. When the Lord Jesus Christ calls you, you better leave all and rise up and follow him. He didn't say, Lord, let me finish out this transaction. He didn't say, Lord, let me just uh, finish out the day. Lord, I've got two weeks vacation coming. I'll serve you then. He just rose up and he walked away to follow Jesus. I, I don't like to preach my experience too much, but I want to share this with you because... This happened to me. When I finally got to the point where I was pretty certain the Lord was calling me to preach, it was in 2006, and I was struggling with it, and I was struggling with the call to preach, and I was thinking, well, Lord, I, I just, I've got to do this. I believe you're calling me. But, you know, I had a, we had a trip out west playing that summer. <laughs> we were taking, going with Mom and Dad, me and Sherry and all the kids, and we were going to go in their motor home. And we were going to go out west and be gone. We ended up going and being gone about 19 days. We saw a lot of stuff. And I said to myself, this was before that trip. I was considering the call to preach, and I was, I was certain by that time, Brother Buddy, that the Lord had called me. And I said to myself, you know, I can't go tell the preacher, my pastor at the time, that I'm called to preach and then be gone for two weeks. We were going to be gone from church the next two, maybe three Sundays. I can't remember. We were going to be gone a lot. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll just wait till I get back and then I'll surrender to the call to preach. Well, I, I don't have time to tell you how stressful that trip was, okay? Uh, we had breakdowns in that RV two or three different times and uh, I ended up driving all but about 500 miles of the 6,000 miles that we drove. And it took me about six months to recover physically from the stress of having driven. We had a great time, Mom. We had a wonderful time. I, we, I loved the trip. But I was worn slap out when I got back. And then, guess what? I didn't acknowledge the call to preach for another year. <laughs> By the time I finally did, I felt like the Lord was going to take my life. I thought I was going to die if I didn't acknowledge that the Lord was calling me to preach. You know what I'd have been better off to have done? Whether we went on that trip or not, I'd have been better off to have risen up and left all and followed the Lord Jesus Christ when he called. That's what Levi did. And you know, our, our, our choices have consequences. Our choices mean something. I think I've already told you. You know who Levi is. We know him by a different name today, a much more famous name. Levi is Matthew. Matthew who wrote the gospel according to Matthew. Imagine no gospel according to Matthew. He might have, you know, the, the, the thing about the Lord Jesus Christ and about God himself, God the Father uh, God in His three-person Godhead, is that He has a way of getting His way. <laughs> um, 
So I'm sure there would have been another gospel, but it might have been the gospel according to Buddy or a gospel according to, to Doug or somebody like that. But, in, but Matthew, Levi here, would have missed out on it, okay? He would have missed out on the blessing of being able to pen the gospel according to Matthew. And we read, as, as we continue reading here, it says, After he arose and followed him, and it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house... And, and Luke tells us that he invited Jesus to come over to his house for a big feast. And we're told that it was a great feast in his own house. It says, Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. You know what he did? Levi, or Matthew here, he didn't just keep it to himself. He said, yes, I'll follow you, Lord, and, and come to my house and eat supper with me, and I want to invite all my co-workers, I want to invite all my friends to come by because I'm following you now, and I want them to follow you. Do you know where primarily evangelism occurs? In your workplace, in your social circles, in your circle of friends and family. You know, it's, I understand the, the need to go overseas and the need to go other places in order to uh, preach the gospel. But beloved, most of what we read about in the Word of God is people who have been touched by Jesus going home to their friends and their family and sharing the good news with them. Sometimes we... Find that a little harder to do, don't we? <laughs> Boy, I'd like I'd lots rather go over to another town or another city and get out on a street corner and preach than to have to go individually to one of my friends and say, Hey man, let me tell you about what we pre preach and believe down at Zion Primitive Baptist Church. Let me tell you about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Let me tell you about how Jesus Christ came to this earth to save His people from their sins, and He did it. I know what you hear in the world. I know you hear about having to make a choice or having to accept Him or having to do something, be baptized, whatever it may be. But let me tell you about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's hard to do when it's your co-worker, your friend, your boss, or even your family. But Matthew, Levi here, he invited all of them over. And then you know what happened. <laughs> he said, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him, that's talking about Jesus, eat with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? They're sitting there looking at him and saying, the very idea that this man who claims to be a prophet, claims to be a rabbi, a teacher of the law, he comes into this place where there's publicans and there's sinners. There's men here that have done things that we look down on. How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And boy, he broke down their pride right here, didn't he? He condemned their arrogance. He said in verse 17, When Jesus heard it, He saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I know there are people who think that they're either living above sin or as close to it as you can get. But beloved, that's not the kind of people I believe I'm preaching to tonight. Right. That's not the kind of people that go to Zion Primitive Baptist Church. I'll tell you, beloved, we are sinners. And we know we're sinners. We were born that way. 
We didn't get born innocent and learn how to be sinners. I've just learned how to be a better sinner as I've grown older. I was born a sinner. I started out thinking about myself. I started out crying when I was hungry. It didn't matter that mom and daddy needed to sleep. I was hungry. I needed something, you see. And as I came up, I didn't have to learn that this was mine. I knew that word well from the beginning. Now, I'll tell you a little secret, too. My four precious children didn't have to learn that either. They had to be taught something else about mine. They had to be taught about sharing and all that. But the reason they had to be taught that was because they were sinners, too. But these Pharisees, they said, we're not like these publicans and sinners. How are you eating with them in the way that you're doing? And Jesus broke it down for them, didn't He? He said, let me tell you all something. The kingdom of God transcends every boundary, every race, every creed, every nationality, every job, and praise God, every sin that anyone has ever committed. He says to these Pharisees, hey, I didn't come here to call the righteous. If you see yourselves as righteous, I'm not here for you. Right. I just came to call those that understand they're sinners. Reckon how many people at this feast the Pharisees had ever tried to talk to or tried to share with or help or to help even understand the things of the law of Moses. I suspect they were too good to have any contact with them. You know why they were all there, so many people together? Because nobody else would talk to them. The Lord Jesus Christ was the only one in their experience that was willing to sit down and share with them. Now, don't get me wrong. He didn't become a sinner, and he didn't partake in their sins. Oh, but he ministered to sinners. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He broke down their pride. And then as we keep reading here, and we'll kind of bring this to a close as soon as we can, we see a couple of examples where he, he broke down their traditions. It says in verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? <laughs> now I want to say this to you. The law is really mostly silent as to fasting. You don't really see a commandment that says, Thou shalt fast in a certain situation. Now it talks about fasting, and there are situations where uh, we see me, godly men and women of the Old Testament where they did fast, but there's no commandment to fast. But what the Pharisees had done, you know, Brother Buddy had mentioned, I believe this morning, he preached a little bit from the book of Malachi, and he, he reminded us that from Malachi, which is the last uh, book in the Old Testament, to Matthew, uh, which is the first book in the New Testament, there's a, there's a space of about 400 years where God did not give any inspired word. Uh, he, once the writer of Malachi penned the last and put a period to the sentence, that was it until the, the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene in the book of Matthew and in, in the Gospels. So about 400 year, years had passed. 
And in that 400-year period, many things occurred in the, uh, in, the, in the history, historically, with the nation of Israel. But one thing that happened in their religion is that they began to take the law, their rabbis and their teachers and Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and so forth, they began to take the law and expand upon it. Now, the law was inspired. The law was given by God. But they began to say, okay, the law says thou shalt... Uh, not covet. Well, we're going to add this to explain that. It's almost like in the in the law that we have today, you have the statutes that are passed, and then you'll have some federal agency that passes regulations pursuant to that statute. And now the regulations, the code of federal regulations is bigger than the United States code. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it was with the Pharisees. They had the law of God, but they began to add to it. And they began to teach things that were really traditions in this long line of traditions, they had compiled together into commandments. And they said one of these traditions was that John and the Pharisees and all their disciples used to fast. Why don't you fast? This is a tradition. This is a commandment. There's, they're a tradition, rather, that they're calling a commandment now. Why are you not fasting? You know what Jesus says to them? He says, y'all are missing the point. I'm not here to adhere to your traditions. As a matter of fact, John tells us that Jesus Christ is the whole point of the law. Remember what he said in John 5, 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. That's where the Pharisees thought they were going to go to heaven from. They were going to keep the law. They were going to keep the law and all these traditions that the man had made, and we're going to get to heaven because of that. They were arrogantly walking along in their self-righteousness. Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But you know what he says then? They, the Scriptures, are they that, that, uh, that reveal me. They are they which testify of me. I'm the point of the whole law. The Old Testament, you know what it's about? It's about me. Notice what he says to them. Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He said, now their day's coming when they're going to fast. The bridegroom will be taken away and they'll fast in those days. He said, but but I'm here now. You remember what Mark said? I'm the, uh, he said, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I mean, it's like Jesus could have said, look, go back and read the book of Mark when he writes it. <laughs> hadn't written it yet. But he said, in the very beginning, it's the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm here. There's no fasting while I'm here. There's no fasting. It's celebration while I'm here. And those are just traditions anyway. And notice he goes on to say something else. No man soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. Now there's a lot I could say about that, but I don't have time. In some ways, this, this is something to point us to the new birth. You know, the new man that's within us is not a reformed old man. Right. Okay? The, the, the new creation within us is, is just that. It's a new creation. It wasn't there before. 
Sometimes I think people think that the new birth has to do with that old natural man reforming himself and doing better and getting better and better till he finally kind of has a new, a new way of looking at things. That's not what... That's some kind of spiritual evolution. Nobody, uh, most most uh, evangelical Christians, most fundamental Christians, don't believe in the doctrine of evolution or the teaching, the theory of evolution uh, in the physical realm. But they believe in it in the spiritual realm. They believe that the that the natural man can somehow evolve into a spiritual man by his actions. Beloved, that doesn't work in nature, and it doesn't work in the spirit. So what he's saying here on one hand is, is that whatever is in you has to be new, you see. You're not going to patch up the old, it's going to be new. But also what I believe more than that that he's saying, he's saying I'm not here to continue the same old path. I'm not here just to reform things and to expand upon them. I'm not a new branch of Judaism, okay? I am here to make things new. Now that doesn't mean he's here to do away with the law, but he's here to fulfill the law, you see. And we see this as we continue reading. It came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And Jesus, again, takes them back to some Old Testament scripture, tells them what David did when he had need. When he was hungry, in verse 25, he went into the day into, into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the shoe bread, which is not lawful to eat. He says, you think David was doing wrong then? And then he says something revolutionary, you might say. Now, now don't get me wrong. It wasn't revolutionary to God. It was just something that these Pharisees had completely missed. He said that unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, what is the point of the law? What was the point of the law? Is the law the point in and of itself? And the answer is no. The law was not the point in and of itself. It's just like this house here. You know, this house was built to house a family. The house is not what's the most important. It's the family that's inside. The reason for the house, was it, the house was erected was to protect the family that lived inside. Would, you, would anybody come up here and say, oh no, if the time, you know, the house uh, catches on fire uh, and, and it starts to burn down, uh, we're going to leave the family inside and save the house. No. You see, that's the way the Pharisees were thinking. It's all about the law. Jesus said it's not all about the law. It's all about God. Because you see, God loves His people more than He loves His law. And He gave His law to His people because He loves His people. And what He's saying here, by the way, is not that it's okay to break the law either. He's not breaking the law here. He's just saying, guys, you have gotten it all out of perspective. You've gotten it all out of whack. And now I'm going to interpret it for you correctly. The Sabbath was made for man. You know, I know people. I know people that work seven days a week. I know I, I have been in the position a few times in my life where I had to work pretty much seven days a week. Various things were going on. Now, I, I never skipped church that I know of maybe once or twice, but not on a regular basis. 
But I know people, and I have known people in the past that worked seven days a week. You know what those people did? They died young. (laughs) We need a rest day. We need a rest day. That's one of the reasons the Lord gave us a day to rest and a day to focus upon Him. But be that as it may, what Jesus is saying here, hey, remember, you're getting it all messed up. You're all out of whack. I am the point of the law. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, He's not breaking the law. He's fulfilling it. But He's giving them the correct and proper interpretation of it that they had missed through many years. Later on, He'll tell them that they are making the Word of God of none effect through their tradition. Yes, Jesus broke it down for the Pharisees and the disciples and the multitudes. He wasn't come to bring a new direction to the law. He was come to fulfill it and to teach them its proper purpose and to usher in a whole new era, an era that we call today the church age or the kingdom age, the kingdom of God age. And his focus was always, first and foremost, number one, that he was and is the Lord God Almighty. And that He came to bring forgiveness of sins and to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm glad that Jesus didn't come to earth to teach us a new variation on Judaism. I'm glad He didn't come down to earth to to hobnob with the big shots, to go to the high priests, to the Pharisees and the leaders of the land and to to just kind of hang around with them so that they could greet one another in the marketplace. I am glad that Jesus Christ came down to earth to eat with publicans and sinners. I'm glad that Jesus is in the house. And I mean that Jesus is, is here now, here on this earth. I'm glad that He's here, and I'm glad that He has a house here on this earth. It's called the church. I know that wherever God's children are, the kingdom of God is because the kingdom of God is within us. But I'm also glad that He has a visible place, a place where what we call the visible aspect of the kingdom of God, which is the church of the living God. And I hope that as Jesus broke things down to the Pharisees and and the disciples and all the multitudes around and as he broke down their traditions and broke down their arrogance and pride and broke down their house, (laughs) I hope that you'll be willing to break down your house, break down your pride, break down your traditions, and, and go to the place where the Lord Jesus Christ is. Listen, it may not be the place you think it is. I know what the religious world teaches today, the religious, the gospel that's taught primarily in the religious world focuses upon the sinner and what the sinner must do and how the sinner must live and what the sinner must pray. But what the gospel, which is the true good news, tells us is that Jesus is the one who has saved us. The true gospel focuses upon the Savior, not the sinner. Let's, let's be sure that we're willing to tear the roof down to break down the house, to get to the place where Jesus is. I am so thankful 
that He gave us such a place. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.